Genesis chapter. I knew I had a powerful voice, but come on now. Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we should have the text up on the screens in a little while. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, let this be an invitation to get one. Um, we value God's word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance and uh, breathe life into a weary soul. We further believe that it is the primary means that God has given us to teach us about himself. And so that's why of the vast majority of what we do here on a, on a Sunday morning is wrapped around uh, his word. Um, we sang, we've sung a, the, the song, uh, Revelation song by Carrie, is it Job or Joby? I don't even know. Um, we sang, we've sang that song a couple of times now uh, in the last few weeks, and um, it is packed with meaning that I don't know if everybody really kind of grabs a hold of. There's a line in the first verse, to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. You know what the mercy seat is? The mercy seat is the point on the, the Ark of the Covenant where these two golden angels with really sharp wings facing each other point together. And they come to this kind of sword point. And that was literally the place where sacrifices were made. Like, animals would be killed on the top of this thing. It was the mercy seat. And we just sang a song about how Jesus sits on heaven's mercy seat. Massive implications there. Next time you sing that song, it's far deeper than what we're singing on the surface. Carrie wrote a great song. So uh, next time JB sings that, whoo, watch out. All right, Revel uh, Genesis chapter 3. Um, we are in the beginning stages of a new series here that we're calling On the Same Page. There's the artwork right there. Uh, and the premise of the series is actually incredibly simple. It's, it's really not complicated at all. We're in this new season here. Uh, we got a lot of people here uh, who, who are new, myself included, who have come out of varying cultural and even le uh, different levels of church backgrounds and all those kinds of things. And so uh, it serves us well as a body of believers to kind of be thinking the same thing when important words in the life of the church are just thrown out in the ether. And words like gospel and mission and uh, church and prayer and scripture and worldview and all these different words that you'll hear from time to time, whether it's from me on the stage or somebody in your small group class or just passing conversation, we'll throw those words around as if they're supposed to mean something. And it's a good idea if we're kind of all thinking the same thing when those words are thrown around. And so uh, we've, we're now on our third week of this series, and we spent the first two weeks talking about the gospel. We've said that the gospel is a legal reality and that the gospel is a family reality. And honestly, when you think about it, those two things don't seem like they fit together, right? They, those two things seem like they're in conflict with each other. In fact, I had more than a couple of people come up to me this, in the last two weeks and, and say, hey, uh, I really had a hard time wrapping my head around this one, but not that one. That one was easy to understand. This one was hard to understand for me. Or even better, I had some people tell me, you know what, I really prefer to think about the gospel this way instead of that way. As if, is that allowed? <laughs> the answer is no. And the answer is we need both. We, we desperately need both the legal reality of the gospel and the family reality of the gospel. If you elevate one part of the gospel above the other because it's you know, easier to deal with, or even worse, if you ignore 
part of the gospel because it's hard to deal with or it's a little awkward at times, then what we're doing is we're twisting and maligning the gospel to our own standards and our own ideals instead of what God has actually done, right? So that's a problem. We need both. And so we need the gospel to be a legal reality because at the end of the day, we are in the category of enemy, according to Paul in Romans chapter 5, and that there is a sin debt that we owe and cannot pay, but God has graciously paid on our behalf through the work of Jesus on the cross. That debt has been taken care of. There's now no longer any legal demand on us because he has paid the penalty on our behalf. But we also need the gospel as a family reality because we have not been left alone to figure out how the world works. We have been adopted into God's family with God as our father, with brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with us, help us along the way, right? We need the gospel as both a family reality and as a legal reality. And if you remember, last week, I stood on this stage and I apologized to you because I told you that asking you to think Either one of those things, when I throw out a single vocabulary word, is kind of a, a lot to swallow, right? The, the idea of, of the gospel as a legal reality is a massive deal. The idea that, that we were guilty and unable to pay, but God has paid on our behalf. To be thinking that as a knee-jerk reaction whenever I just say the word gospel, that's a lot to ask. And then to throw on top of that, oh, by the way, I also want you to be thinking as a knee-jerk reaction, gospel as family. So I told you last week, and I was sorry, and so to make it up to you, we're going to talk about the gospel for the third week in a row. You ready? See, we've talked about the gospel in two dimensions. We've talked about the gospel as it relates to you personally, and we've talked about the gospel how it relates to you as a corporate body of believers. But there's a third dimension to the gospel that we need to see this morning. You ready for it? When I say the word gospel, I want you to be thinking cosmic reality let's take this flower of the gospel off the drawn page and put it into real life in three-dimensional terms you ready genesis chapter three now the word cosmic has a couple of different definitions and the first one obviously is uh relating to things about space right that's kind of where most of us go when we think cosmic you think of all the little things you watched growing up that painted space and space adventures in a romantic way and depending upon your generation, I can probably guess uh, which one you're thinking about. Some of you, it's Star Wars. Some of you, it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Some of you are old enough to be thinking Buck Rogers, okay? You know I'm right. Yeah. But that's not the only way you can define the word cosmic. The other way is to use it as an adjective that means inconceivably vast, right? Inconceivably vast. Or we can say it another way. Beyond your ability to really wrap your head around it. The gospel is inconceivably vast. It is beyond your ability to really wrap your head around it. Does that mean we can actually get somewhere this morning? Like if I'm going to stand on this stage and say, let's define the gospel as a cosmic reality, and we acknowledge that cosmic means beyond our ability to understand, how far are we going to get? Not very far. <laughs> But we can make a stab at it, right? We can, we can make an attempt at wrapping our 
head around this. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at some, some bookends of the Bible, Genesis 3 and, and Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, so for those of you who are in Genesis 3, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 tells the story of creation, right? And tells the story in the same way, in two, and, and tells the same story in two different ways. We'll say it that way, all right? Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of the creation account on literally a cosmic level. Well, there's our word again, right? It tells about the creation of the cosmos, the sun and moon and stars. We get the story of how the light was created and how God separated the greater light from the lesser light. And so we get sun, moon, and stars, and we get the creation of the waters and how waters are gathered together and land is formed and all these kinds of things. And we get told the story of, uh, of the creation of plants and animals. And at the apex of this creation account in Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of man and woman made in God's image. The reason why it's the apex is because we are image bearers of the creator. We are image bearers of this good, wise creator king. And then chapter 2 comes along, and it's like the writer of Genesis, Moses, and God through Moses, says, you know what, let's, I love that song, let's hit it again. And so he plays it in a different key and a slightly different tempo. And so we get the creation account told again, but this time it zeroes its focus in specifically on the creation of man and woman. And so in Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation of Adam. We, we, he's given commands to work the ground and keep it. And then we get to see the creation of woman, Eve. And, and it's this beautiful picture where she's taken from his side instead of his head or his feet and all these kinds of things. And so we, we can talk for days about Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, but here's the thing. Adam and Eve, man and woman, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, live in the garden and everything is perfect, is a word we'll use, right? Everything is rhythmic, flows seamlessly. Man lives in perfect relationship with his God, with his creator, he lives in perfect relationship with his spouse, with Eve, and he lives in perfect relationship with the rest of creation. Quick survey, anybody else walking in that? No? Me okay, me neither. All right. No, in the garden, everything works exactly like it's supposed to. Like everything. Everything Adam and Eve touches turns to gold, man. It, it's cultivated and built up to be exactly what they intended. Anybody else? Or is, or is the world that you're living in, living, is it more like the world that I'm living in where you start a project and you get a third of the way into that project and you have to stop that project so you can work on projects B, C, D, E, and F, right? How many of you start out with a to-do list and you get like one thing into that to-do list and you have to wreck the to-do list to do a hundred other things? Anybody else? Am I alone in this world? <laughs> yeah. So what happened? What changed? Genesis 3 happened. So let's look at that story together. We're going to call time out a bunch as we walk through this text, but we'll eventually read the whole chapter. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So let's call it right out the gate. All right, the serpent, we're not going to learn the, the serpent's name in this story, but in other parts of the Bible, we're going to learn that the serpent's name is Satan. All right, we can spend a lot of time talking about this, but uh, for the purposes of our story this morning, 
Here's what you need to know. Satan is a former angel who used to be celebrated in God's kingdom, but has fallen. He grew selfish, got cast out of the kingdom. And so he is spending his days until God does him away eternally. He is spending his days wrecking what God does and robbing God of glory. And so Genesis 3 introduces this new character, and he's the bad guy, okay? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, for those of you who know Genesis 1 and 2 well, is that what God actually said? What did God command them? He told them not to eat from one specific tree, right? Adam and Eve live and exist, work, spend their days in a literal garden full of a thousand yeses. Everything is go, do, be fruitful, and multiply, right? And he gives them one single solitary no. Don't eat from the tree of one, one specific fruit from one tree in the middle of the garden. Everything else is a yes, except for this one solitary no. So what is Satan doing here? What is the serpent doing? He's, one, he's outright lying. Two, he's casting doubt on God's character, isn't he? Right, God's, God's holding out on you, right? God's, God, doesn't, God doesn't want your joy. God's holding out on you. Look at verse 2. The woman responds. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, comma, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So time out again. Is that what God said? What's wrong? Did God say not to touch the tree? No, for those of you who know the Genesis 2 story, God doesn't say anything about not touching the tree. He just says, don't eat the fruit from that tree, right? So what has happened? Immediately, Eve has added to the law, right? Oh, how quickly we fall victim to that. So even as Satan is playing his little game of casting doubt on God's character, and even as Eve is defending God's character, she still is starting to fall victim to this lie, isn't she? It's starting to snowball here. And it's starting to become something not so great. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so Satan, again, outright lies. But he's turning up the volume on, God's holding out on you, isn't he? Do you think Satan has any new tricks? Like, from, from the creation account until now, until the day that he's finally done away with, his game's never any different. Everything he does is, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want your joy. You want your joy. And if you're going to get joy, you've got to go get it yourself. Anybody else walking in that? Like me, the times that I fail miserably or the times that I saw God as this cosmic killjoy that was trying to prevent me from enjoying, prevent me from gaining, prevent me from doing, and I went after it my own way. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So, 
the woman eats, takes a bite of the fruit. And a lot of theologians debate over when the first sin actually happened and what that first sin was. And so some people argue that it's this literal biting of a piece of fruit. I don't think that's true. What happened? There was something in Eve's heart that decided before that bite ever took place that God could not be trusted. And that if she was going to get what she wanted, she was going to have to do it on her own. Something turned sour in her heart long before a bite of fruit ever happened. Now, it fleshed itself out in a bite of fruit. But the sin took place in her heart, right? It wasn't the physical action that was the problem. It was the heart stance of who she saw God to be that was the problem. Look at the back end of verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, comma, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to who? So where's Adam as all this is playing out? Doofus is standing beside her, right? Yeah, so the argument that all of this is Eve's fault? Uh -uh. For homework, go back and read. Genesis chapter 2 and figure out where Eve is at when the command to not eat the fruit is given. Here's a hint. She hasn't been created yet. So if Eve is to know that they're not supposed to have the fruit, who's supposed to tell her? Who's supposed to guard her? Who's supposed to take care of her? In God's eyes, Adam is to blame. Right? Yeah. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So all of a sudden, uh, we, we started out this picture in Genesis 1 and 2 with perfection and perfect relationship between man and woman. They're walking around naked, and nobody seems to have a problem with that. All right? uh, I, I don't know how your house works. It's not how it happens in my house. All right? um, but listen. There is no shame, there is no sense of barrier between Adam and Eve, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden there's a problem. All of a sudden, shame enters into the world that they've never existed in before. They cast doubt on God's goodness, they reject God's authority as king and as the one responsible for good and right and making sense of the world. They begin to take that on their own, and all of a sudden, there's a problem between us now. And I've got to hide some of myself from you, and you've got to hide some of yourself from me. Relationships are fracturing all over the place here, aren't they? Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, time out. Does God have to ask where Adam is? So why is God asking? For the same reason I asked my three-year-old why the thing got broken, right? I know she broke the thing. I want her to tell me she broke the thing, right? It's a getting her to fess up to or speak the words of her guilt, right? All right? So God asks Adam where he is. Look at verse, where did I leave off? Verse 10. And he said, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So Adam, who has now experienced this fractured relationship with his spouse between husband and wife, they're hiding themselves from each other. Now, when he hears God walking in the garden, a relationship that used to be walking with him and talking with him, we wrote a nice little old song about that, right? right? He, he, a relationship that used to be flawless and perfect and full of disclosure, now he jumps in the bushes to try to hide himself. Side, sidebar. You're going to hide from God in the bushes? Is, are the bushes going to slow God down? So apparently sin also makes you stupid. <laughs> right? It, it would seem. Adam's brilliant idea is to duck under a shrub. Oh, but the far, far more tragic thing to point out in that verse is a God he used to know dearly and walk in relationship with, he is now scurrying away because he doesn't want to be seen. Oh, hide me, oh, hide me. Give me the shrub. So relationship with God is beginning to be fractured. Look at verse 12. God asks him, what happened? Did you do what I told you not to do? Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So what does Adam do? Passes off the blame, right? Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So what does she do? She passes off the blame. Let me know one of the major faults, the major things that happened at the fall. It's a failure to take responsibility for your actions. Something that creeps up over and over and over again in our world, right? I mean, isn't that something we all kind of long to, to see fixed, to see rectified? It's a Genesis 3 reality. Look at 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will multiply, I lost my place. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, because nobody in this room has ever had a contentious relationship with their spouse. Verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the what? The ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So while the serpent and Eve are handed out punishments that are very personal, for Adam, it would seem that the whole creation has been cursed because of him. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Verse 22, and the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which the Lord was taken, or from which he was taken, excuse me. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, a type of angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way uh, to the tree of life. So the Bible teaches early and unapologetically that this world is broken. Anybody want to go, I disagree. I think all of us understand that, right? We all have stories. Don't you have stories? Man, I got more stories than I can count. Every one of us instinctively kind of gets that that's what's going on here, right? No matter what your religious background is or your experiential background is, every one of us understands on a level deeper than we can comprehend that this world is messed up. So much so that we make fun of the people who don't know yet that it's, not me- that it's messed up. So we have phrases like, they're in la-la land, or they live in a bubble, or under a rock, or they're wearing rose-colored glasses. Like, we make fun of the people who don't know that this world is wrecked. They're due. We all, we all really, really get that this world is broken. Things have been fractured. And we long desperately for a fix, right? So much so that the world throws out offer after offer, option after option of how to fix it. We come up with noble-sounding solutions like spreading education, ending poverty, using treaties and peace pacts to unify governments and uh, negate or nullify the bad governments. First of all, a couple problems with that. First of all, one, you can never minimize the sinfulness of man. As long as it's human hearts running these kinds of things, good luck. Just for a thought exercise, let's say for a second we could. Let's say for a second that we could end poverty and we could get rid of uh, health care problems that are met you know, by simple solutions like malaria and dysentery and those kinds of things. Let's say we, we could fix those issues. Let's say that we could create a government that, that was always for its people and did what was good and right and honorable and all those kinds of things. Let's say that we did fix that, all that stuff. We would never get rid of all the natural disasters that creep up from time to time, Right? You're still going to get up in the morning. You're still going to hear about an earthquake on the other side of the world. You're still going to learn about a friend who's going to have to sit in a doctor's office tomorrow and get that cancer result in. Or learn of the friend that OD'd. This isn't the reality that we're living in. Even if we can, even if we could solve most of our problems. We would never solve all of them. I mean, let's be honest here, doesn't it? Even on our best days, when it feels like we're, we're rolling good, doesn't it seem like more things come unraveled than we're able to tie together? 
if we're real honest, on the bad days, doesn't it feel like we're drowning in this? I don't know about you, but I long desperately for a fix. I long desperately for some of this, all of this to be finally undone. Hold your finger in Genesis and flip to Romans 8 real quick. We're going to come back to Genesis. You don't have to hold your finger there. Maybe you can find your stuff in your Bible really easy. Romans chapter 8. there myself most of y'all beat me romans chapter 8 look at verse 18 this is the apostle paul writing he says this for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the Apostle Paul uh, says that not only do we feel the fracture that happened in Genesis 3, but that the whole creation feels the fracture that happened in Genesis 3. That curse that we saw God give out to Adam on the ground, Paul uses the phrase, like the pains of childbirth. Now, never been the one primarily responsible for childbirth. Probably won't ever happen. But I have been in the room a couple of times. Um, gentlemen, those of you who have not experienced it, let me kind of give you a walkthrough. I'm going to be careful. It is It is far more tense than what you believe before you walk in the door. Emotions are ramping up. And pain begins to build. And frustrations start to build. And sometimes things get said that shouldn't have been said. (laughs) And it builds. And it builds. And it builds. And it feels like it can't build anymore. And yet it builds even more. And then finally, there's this massive moment of release, and the whole room leaps for joy. Those of you who have been in that room know that, right? It, it, it grows and grows, and you think it's never going to be here, and it's never going to finally be over, and then all of a sudden it's over, and everybody's like ecstatic. You've got nurses who see that every day who are going, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Paul says, Paul says that this world is groaning. And it's building, and it's building, and it's building, and it's building, and it's longing desperately for the day when it will finally be released. Don't we also long for that? Is there anybody in this room going, no, I'm good. I prefer it when my world falls down around me. 
We long for the day when everything will finally be made right. Back to Genesis 3. So what's the fix? Well, the fix is that we've actually read it. Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to look at two verses in this text again. We'll agree. Verse 15, God is handing out punishment to the serpent. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Who's off, what are the offspring that we're talking about? The offspring of the woman is Jesus. The offspring of the serpent, not person, but result, is the death that he brought with him, right? The death and destruction and the fracture that has been broken on a cosmic level. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And then we get this picture of a, that his offspring will be crushed and her offspring will have a bruised heel. This is this picture that he'll be injured but ultimately victorious, right? I mean, isn't that what the cross of Jesus is? That Jesus is injured, that he is dealt a blow, but he is ultimately victorious over death. That he's ultimately victorious over this broken relationship, this broken, fractured creation. Even as God is doling out the punishment for Adam and Eve's sin, for Adam and Eve's rebellion, he is promising a coming fix in a Jesus that is yet to hit the scene. But that's not the only foreshadowing of the gospel that we get in Genesis 3. Some of you knew about the verse 15 one. Some of you don't know about the verse 21 one. Let's look at that one. The man called his wife's name Eve. I'm in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, so when Adam and Eve first noticed that they're naked, they tried to hide them sh their shame, shield their bodies with fig leaf under roots. Okay, and so here's the thing. Fig leaves are probably a terrible choice for underwear. All right, just itchy. All right, Don't, let's not go there. All right. They try their absolute best to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness, to cover their, their sense of disconnect with whatever they could make by what was there. And so God does something. Even as he's casting them out of the garden, he makes for them clothes out of an actual animal, out of animal skin. So the question we have to answer is this. Where'd the animal come from? It had to die, right? The first death that we see in the Bible is not Adam and Eve. It's an animal used to cover and to take care of Adam, of Adam and Eve. We, even as he's casting them out of the garden, we get a picture of sacrifice. 
something else died on behalf of them. God promised that if they took the bite of the fruit, death would come. And that death eventually did come for Adam and Eve. But first and foremost, it didn't come immediately. Something else stood in the way. And took that death itself. Years and years and years and years and years before Jesus would finally show up on the scene. Even years and years and years before Old Testament Israel would be given the sacrificial system. We see a picture of a sacrifice on their behalf to cover for their sin, to cover for their shame, to cover for their nakedness. And even in the creation account, God's going, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. Just wait and see. I'm going to take care of all of this. And every single one of us desperately longs for him to do so. So let's look at one more final chunk of scripture today. Revelation 21. Excuse me. (coughs) Revelation 21. Like I said, we're going to look at the bookends of the Bible this morning. We're going to look at the beginning of the story and the end of the story. Revelation 21. Revelation is a hard book to preach from faithfully uh, because there's a lot of things that we just don't understand well yet. Uh, it's, a, it's a future reality that hasn't played out yet. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of apocalyptic imagery there that leaves us going, I don't know. Right? And so as, as the pastor, as the guy responsible for teaching the Bible well and imparting uh, good Bible knowledge to everybody else here, hear me say this. Be wary of people who think they have Revelation figured out. All right? I will never teach an exegetical uh, study on the book of Revelation, and it's because of this. If, if I'm doing it correctly, we'll spend more time saying, I don't know what that means, than we do saying, I know what that means. So, don't go there. That doesn't mean that everything in Revelation is hard to understand. And it doesn't mean that everything is this weird imagery that we're not sure exactly what it means yet. We are very sure of what the purpose of Revelation is. And it's this. It's a vision that God gave to the Apostle John to give to a church that was living in conflict as their world was falling down around them. And it was given for the purpose of encouraging them and spurring them on to finish the work that they had been called to do. And so the reason for that is really kind of simple when you think about it. Like, is there any job on this planet that you don't do better and more faithfully if you kind of see where the finish line is? Like, if you know what the finished product is supposed to look like and you, you can get the finish line in sight, we all kind of do the job a little bit better, right? And so God gives a picture to his people of what that finish line is. And so let's look at Revelation 21 together. Revelation 21, let's look at verse 1. This is a vision John has given. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea to a Jewish mind was a dangerous place. So for the sea to be not there anymore, it means not dangerous anymore. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now that's a picture. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. Verse 7, To the one who conquers will have, this, uh, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Skip down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the, na- and the, excuse me, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you long for this world to be fixed, if you long for a day when there will be no more hurt, no more heartache. Will there, be, will there be no more wars and rumor of wars and aggressive nation this and poverty, refugee, whatever that. If you long for a world where death itself will be done away with forever. God has promised nothing less than that. Oh, hear me, National Baptist Church. If you were a follower of Jesus, God has promised exactly that. And we serve and follow a God who always keeps his promises. When I say the word gospel, I want you to be thinking cosmic reality. Through the work of Jesus, God is making all things new and he is reconciling a fractured and broken and desperately reeling world back to himself yes and amen god saved us on a personal level he meets the legal demands of our sin and bring unites us back to himself yes and amen he unites us together as a family of believers where we get a father and brothers and sisters but oh no 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 it is not simply that he is reconciling every atom in the cosmos back to himself what went horrifically wrong in genesis 3 will be ultimately and forever undone he is just getting started He's invited you and I to play a part in the story. Oh, how lucky. This is the greatest action adventure drama the universe will ever know. Every story that 
excites our hearts in movies and books and TV shows, stories where the good guy wins and the bad guy receives justice. Uh, Every one of those stories where the, the, the prince rescues the damsel in distress, every one of those things that makes our heart happy and go, I like that story, is a mere shadow of the story that is playing out all around us. It is a cosmic reality that is far bigger than we can ever even try to wrap our heads around. So what do we do this morning with this text? How do we, how do we respond to Genesis 3 and Romans 8 and Revelation 21 and 22? We respond in a couple of ways. First of all, not everybody in here is a, king, is a citizen of this kingdom to come. And you can do something about that today. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and it'll be a chance for people to respond however God is calling them to respond. Maybe you're realizing for the first time this morning that you need Jesus. You receive him by repenting of your sin and coming to him as Lord. You do that in your own heart. But if you need to talk, we've got some people up here that can help you walk through that process. So maybe you're here this morning for the very first time. You need to, you need to say, you know what? I, I've been trying to do this on my own, and I'm tired of the world being broken. I'm tired of trying to swim upstream. I need Jesus instead. We're going to do something about that today. But that's not the only group of people that need to respond. The rest of us. The rest of us need to start taking stock of the world around us and the circles of influence that God has given us. Do we live and talk and operate in a way that shows that the gospel is a cosmic reality? Do the words that come out of our mouth and the actions that flow from our hands give testimony to the fact that he is making all things new? Maybe you're here today and you need to spend our time as we respond to God through song asking the questions of how does this cosmic reality of the gospel affect and influence where I work and where I go to school and my home and all these kinds of things. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be your chance to respond however God's calling you to respond. Father God, you are good. Thank you for being more good and more big than than we often even imagine you to be. That you are making all things new. You are working, you are saving, you are calling, you are reconciling. God, I long for the day when death and pain and sorrow will be no more. I long for the day when relationships will be rightly restored. You've promised exactly that. Would you help me trust your promise? Oftentimes I don't. Oftentimes I, like Eve, I, I doubt your goodness. I doubt your concern for me. And I go after it my own way. It never works like I, th- I think it would. I always fail. But even as you were patient with Adam and Eve, you were patient with us. 
Would you draw us close this morning? Would you cast a big picture in our hearts and in our minds of what you are doing? I'm confident that when we see what you are doing on a cosmic level, it is hard not to be excited about joining up with you. Oh, the things that we chase after in this world are little bitty things compared to what you're doing. Thank you for inviting us along. God, may we respond well this morning. In your name, amen.